Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. So last Shabbat, I spoke about two women, Corey Ten Boom and Sipporah, the wife of Moses. Corey wrote about her experiences hiding and saving Jews in Nazi-occupied Holland, eventually going to the extermination camps along with her entire family. It was only by clinging to her faith in Yeshua that she was able to go through such an intense suffering and then afterward to preach about reconciliation and forgiveness. At Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Israel, there is a list of the righteous among the nations. Uh, These were non-Jews who risked their own lives and livelihood to save Jewish people during this time. Many of these were Christian and did so out of conviction from that Yeshua faith. Uh, This week is part two of last week's sermon. So if you missed it, you should uh, go on our podcast or on our website and check it out. And this week's sermon is about Oscar and Rahab, two more righteous among the nations. First, the story of Oscar Schindler. As we dive in, let's notice Schindler's less than righteous origins and what transpired from there. This is from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Oscar Schindler was a German industrialist, former member of the Nazi party, and possibly the most famous righteous Gentile who is credited with saving as many as 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust. His story was brought to international acclaim by the 1982 novel Schindler's Ark and the 1993 film Schindler's List. Schindler was born April 28, 1908, in Austria-Hungary, what is now Moravia in the Czech Republic. He grew up in a Catholic, well-to-do family with all the privileges money could buy. He married Emily at 19, but was never without a mistress or two. He had presided over the demise of his family business and became a salesman when opportunity came knocking in the guise of war. Never one to miss a chance to make money, he marched into Poland on the heels of the SS. He dove headfirst into the black market and the underworld and soon made friends with the local Gestapo Gestapo bigwigs, softening them up with women, money, and illicit booze. His newfound connections helped him to acquire a factory, which he ran with the cheapest labor around, the Jewish people. At first, he seemed like every other usurping German industrialist, driven by profit and unmoved by the means of his profiteering. But somewhere along the line, something changed. In December 1939, as occupied Poland was being torn apart by the savagery of the Holocaust, Schindler took his first faltering steps from the darkness of Nazism toward the light of heroism. If you saw a dog going to be crushed under a car, he said later of his wartime actions, wouldn't you help him? 
Before the outbreak of the war, Poland had been a relative haven for European Jews. Krakow's Jewish population numbered over 50,000. But when Germany invaded, destruction began immediately, and it was merciless. Jews were herded into crowded ghettos, randomly beaten and humiliated, capriciously killed. Jewish property and businesses were summarily destroyed or appropriated by the SS and sold to Nazi investors, one of whom was the fast-talking, womanizing, money-hungry Oskar Schindler. Not long after acquiring his uh, factory, which produced enamel goods and munitions to supply the German front, the removal of Jews to death camps began in earnest. Schindler's Jewish accountant put him in touch with the few Jews with any remaining wealth. They invested in his factory, and in return, they would be able to work there and perhaps be spared. He was persuaded to hire more Jewish workers, designating their skills as, quote, essential, paying off the Nazis so they would allow them to stay in Krakow. Schindler was making money, but everyone in his factory was fed. No one was beaten. No one was killed. It became an oasis of humanity in a desert of moral inaction. As the brutality of the Holocaust escalated, Schindler's protection of his Jewish workers became increasingly active. In the summer of 1942, he witnessed a German raid on the Jewish ghetto, watching innocent people being packed onto trains bound for certain death. Something awakened in him. Beyond this day, no thinking person could fail to see what would happen, he said later. I was now resolved to do everything in my power to defeat the system. By the autumn of 1944, Germany's hold on Poland had weakened. As the Russian army approached, the Nazis tried desperately to complete their program of liquidation and sent all remaining Jews to die. But Schindler remained true to the Schindlerjuden, the workers he referred to as my children. After the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto and the transfer of many Jews to the Plazo uh, concentration camp, Schindler used his influence to set up a branch of the camp for 900 Jewish workers in his factory compound and made his now famous list of the workers he would need for its operation. The factory operated in its new location for a year, making defective bullets for German guns. Conditions were grim for the Schindlers as well as the workers, but Schindler saved most of the workers when he transferred his factory to Sudetenland in October 1944. When the war ended, Schindler fled to Argentina with his wife and a handful of his workers and bought a farm. In 1958, he abandoned the land, his wife, and his mistress to return to Germany. He spent the remaining years of his life dividing his time between Germany and Israel, where he was honored and taken care of by his Schindler Juden. As I mentioned last week, the biblical story of God's relationship with Israel is full of integration from the righteous among the nations. Many from the surrounding enemies of Israel, such as Canaan and Moab and Midian. I find this uniquely parallel to stories like that of Oscar Schindler. I think it's like the Bible is still happening in a sense. The text is deliberately highlighting these brave, amazing individuals. This would have made the original readers pause and notice this consistent theme of righteous Gentiles 
and perhaps we should as well. But the question is, why are these examples of non-Jews in the Bible? An infamous example is the story of Rahab found in this week's Haftarah portion. But before we get to that, does everyone know what Haftarah means when I say that? Well, if you don't, I'll explain it. So we have the Torah portion, that's the weekly reading from several chapters of the Torah, the first five books. And usually it goes in order, uh, starting in the fall with Genesis 1, uh, except for special holiday readings. The Haftarah is the section from the prophets and the writings, the rest of the Hebrew Bible, that has some thematic relationship to the Torah portion been chosen by the rabbis, and it's consistent throughout Judaism, and every year on the same date, we read that Torah portion and the Haftarah portion, which is related. Uh, last year, I don't know if you remember this, but I preached almost exclusively on the Haftarah portions because I wanted to, to share some of those, you know, we've been preaching on the Torah portion for many years in this ministry, so I want to do something different that was consistent with our tradition. Um, and, uh, but this, this week last year, we were all, I don't know if you remember this, we were all meeting on Zoom. We weren't in the building yet. And Rabbi Russ Resnick shared with us on the Torah portion. What is it this week? It's the story of the 12 men who scouted out the land. And 10, 10 of them exaggerated about the giant people they found. And they gave a negative report about excuse me, about the land, which caused the people to be overcome with fear and anxiety. They literally said it would be better to die in the desert. And God responds, okay, have it your way. So we wandered in the desert for 40 years, one for each day of the 40 days of scouting. So it's a, a balagan, right? It's a disaster. However, the Haftarah portion from Joshua chapter two is so great because it's like the applied lesson from the Torah portion, the, the disaster of the first mission, and it goes much differently. So here's a possible conversation <clears throat> between Joshua and Caleb who planned the second mission. <clears throat> okay, let's go over what happened last time and think about how we can do this differently. Last time, Moses sent scouts that were well-known men. They weren't discreet at all, and they probably ended up interacting with the tall, cruel inhabitants of the land, which made them feel small and scared. What's more, they shared their bad report with everyone. Okay, so let's dispatch the spies secretly this time so that they're not known in the land, and let's have them report right back to us. Joshua and Caleb. Why are you saying our names? Well, it's so that everyone knows who's, who's talking here. Okay, uh, but let me get back into it. All right. <clears throat> Last time, Moses sent a large number of 12 spies for such an important mission. I think a smaller group is better so they can focus in on the goal. Okay, let's just send two spies. Last time, we trembled before the Canaanites. Okay, so this time we're aiming for the opposite, that the Canaanites would melt before the Israelites because of the fame of God. Okay, inherit the land on three. One, two, three. Inherit the land. Inherit the land. 
All right. <clears throat> so I don't know that that's exactly how the conversation went, but that's how I, I imagine it. So now that we have some context, let's take a look at the actual Haftarah portion, shall we? All right, let's dive in. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent out the two spies from Shittim, saying, go explore the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. The king of Jericho was told, some men from B'nai Israel have just come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, bring out the men who came to you who entered your house, for they have come to spy out all the land. But the woman took the two men and hid them and said, yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. So when it was time to shut the gate at dark, the men went out and I don't know where they went. Pursue them quickly, you, you probably overtake them. But really she had brought them up to the roof and hid them in the stalks of flax that she had spread out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the fords of the Jordan. As soon as the pursuers had gone, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that Adonai has given you the land. Dread of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land are melting in fear before you. For we have heard how Adonai dried up the water of the Sea of Reeds before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard about it, our hearts melted, and no spirit remained any more in anyone because of you. For Adonai, your God, he is God, in heaven above and on earth beneath. I just want to make a comment. You see the parallel, the difference between their, her, her trembling before the God of Israel and the Israelites trembling before the giants in the, in the Torah portion. It's a, I think it's deliberate parallel. So now, please swear by Adonai, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's house. Give me a true sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them, and save our lives from death. The men said to her, our life for yours, if you don't report this business of ours. Then it will be when Adonai gives us the land that we will deal kindly and loyally with you. So she lowered them down by a rope through the window for her house was in the wall. She was living in the wall. Then she said to them, go to the hill country, lest the pursuers meet you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Afterward, you may go your way. Then the men said to her, we will be released from this oath that you have made us swear. Unless when we come into the land, you tie this line of scarlet thread in the window through which you lowered us down and gather to yourself in the, in the house, your father and mother, brothers, and all your father's household. Whoever goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood will be on his head and we will be innocent. But whoever is with you in the house, his blood will be on our head if any hand is laid on him. But if you divulge this business of ours, then we will be released from your oath. You have made us swear. So she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away. After they had gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. Then they departed and came to the hill country, and they stayed there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had looked for them all along the road, but of course, they did not find them. Then the two men returned, came from down the hill, from down from the hill country, crossed over and came to Joshua, son of Nun. 
They reported to him all that had befallen them. Surely, this is the new report, right? Surely Adonai has given us the land into, their, into our hands, they said to Joshua. Indeed, all the inhabitants of the land have melted in fear before us. The thing about Rahab is that the scripture doesn't sugarcoat her less than righteous origins. The Midrash recounts four disgraceful matters that are mentioned about Rahab. She is called Rahab the harlot, which she was. Joshua 2.15 states, for her dwelling was the outer side of the city wall and she lived in the actual wall, thus teaching that she engaged in prostitution uh, with the people from the inside and robbers from the outside. The third thing to her discredit was living in the land of Canaan itself, whose inhabitants were known to be harsh and evil. And the fourth negative item refers to her as a resident of Jericho, whose people were fated to extinction, as it is said of them, you must destroy them completely, Deuteronomy 20, verse verse 17. Despite all of this, despite all of these things against her, uh, it is stated in Joshua 6, 25, that she dwelt among Israel up to this day. Isn't that interesting? Although Rahab was from the peoples of the land and the families of the earth, she saved the spies. Why? Out of love of Israel and love for the God of Israel. And God rewarded her out of that love and protected her and her family from death. In terms of her character and destiny, the Midrash also provides these insights. Because Rahab was not afraid of the Israelites when they came to raise Jericho, the rabbis applied to her Proverbs 31, verse 21. This is interesting. She is not worried for her household because of snow, for her whole household is dressed in what color? Crimson, scarlet, red, right. She was not concerned because of the length of crimson cord that would be a sign between them. Isn't that an interesting midrash? Yeah. And, and Proverbs 31, that's, you know, that's as good as you can get, right? The rabbis deduce from the story of Rahab the superiority of repentance over prayer. For Moses prayed exceedingly, but God did not accept his entreaty to enter into the land of Israel. However, the repentance of Rahab, the harlot, was accepted, and it is thought that seven kings and eight prophets issued forth from her. And, of course, she did enter and live in the land of Israel. The idea that her destiny can be so different uh, as to actually be infused within the story of God and the Jewish people, it's the same as what happened with Oscar Schindler, who spent the latter part of his life partially in Israel, sharing in the blessing of Israel, just like Rahab, even though they were not Jewish, and even though their origins were suspect. And finally, we have the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah in Matthew, which gives us this amazing testimony. The book of the genealogy of Yeshua HaMashiach, Ben David, Ben Avraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Remember that. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. 
Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David the king. And if you keep reading, you get to Yeshua the Messiah. In this short section, five verses, you have three women named, which is unusual in a uh, second in, in a first century Jewish text genealogy anyway, but all of them also are not from within Israel. If you're familiar with their stories, there's also quite a bit of, uh, let's say, drama here, right? Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law, and the circumstances of her giving birth to those twins is... Uh, it's unusual. I encourage you to, to read it on your own time, right? And then we have Ruth. Ruth's past is checkered with, with loss and mourning and famine. And Rahab's story, we know. We just read it. And these three stories are woven in to the lineage of Messiah himself. The fullness of all the promises to Israel names these three. So what do we make of this? I think the point is these narratives are meant to encourage us, one, to see the sovereignty of God over our past, over our trauma, over our mistakes and our failures. The sovereignty of God to build a relationship with the Jewish people by weaving in the righteous among the nations. It's a beautiful thing, Baruch Hashem. And despite their flaws and their failures, Schindler and Rahab are truly counted as righteous among the nations, both by Israel and by the Lord himself. Our failures do not define us. Our past does not define us. Hashem defines us. I think Shmuel was saying something very similar up here about a half hour ago. God is still working, still redeeming. He's still bringing the kingdom of heaven through the kind of bumpiness of our lives. May we continually look to him, the righteous one, from whom all of us get our righteousness and our identity and our name, because in him we live and move and have our being. Avinu Shebeshemaim, our father in heaven, we thank you that you are faithful to us. We thank you for these beautiful stories of the righteous among nations, even the enemies of Israel that uh, you have plucked out and used to be part of uh, your beautiful story of your salvation, the beautiful story of the, the gospel itself. And uh, we thank you that you have called each of us um, with a similar purpose to um, either remain in Israel or to come alongside Israel to, um, to be a blessing, to be the fullness of what you've called us to be, Lord. And we thank you that we're not tied down by the mistakes of our past and what we've, what, you know, <laughs> these, these difficult, traumatic things that Schindler went through and uh, the flaws that he had or the flaws that Rahab had. It's not about that, but it's about what you want to do in and through us, even as we are imperfect, because you weave us into the story of the perfect one, Yeshua the Messiah. And we're so thankful for that, Lord, because you're sovereign. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.